When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Before we continue, I've just finished listening to a new episode from The Case Files. A warning, tissues are needed. It's an upsetting but very important story of a woman being repeatedly ignored by medical staff with tragic consequences. A mother's worst nightmare became a reality for Muna Abarizik. She knew something was wrong with her baby Mohammed, but multiple medical professionals missed signs of a deadly disease. Her case led to changes being made in medical practices, and it's just one of the many in the series of real-life stories behind some of the most astonishing cases in recent legal history, and how people have been able to use the legal system to right wrongs and get justice. So while you're waiting for the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, go and have a listen to The Case Files. You won't be disappointed. Hello and welcome to this special analysis episode of The Storyteller Violent Delights. And I'm so excited to be sharing this with you all. You've been on this journey with me and as I warned at the beginning, this was going to evoke so many thoughts and feelings and judgments with every episode and that would change and change again. We are all human and we cannot help but be judge and jury, especially when it involves a crime and the most serious of crimes, murder. This discussion I have with Laura Richards, and you'll hear her full credentials and experience in a moment, is critical, I feel, in my purpose of telling this story. My investigation and inquiry had a definite goal. Finding out the truth behind the headlines, the story of the humans, and not just their actions. And it's their actions which inspired the headlines and filled the newspapers day after day and led to a legacy of gossip and scandal. These were real people with real lives and families, and each of them had children. And within those families' history, there's been a stain, whether that was the Garveys, the children, siblings, cousins, or the Tevendales and Burses. But the two central people, Max and Sheila, were both victims and perpetrators in their own right. But there's a difference between them. There was a clear victim from day one, and the abuse of Sheila was deliberate and over many, many years. And yet, she has been, in the eyes of many, the villain in the story. The femme fatale, the black widow. And I wanted not to change your minds, but to open them and look at things in a different way. In this discussion, we break down the characteristics and psychology of the main players and we analyse the unfolding of the perfect storm. And very importantly, we hope that some of you will hear in there stories that you can identify with, whether it's people in your own life or indeed yourself, the patterns of abuse that might not look like abuse to the outside world. So get the kettle on and settle in and soak up every word that you're about to hear from this brilliant human and brilliant mind, Laura Richards. Well, I'm beyond pleased to be introducing this special guest um, and it's going to be a long introduction because this lady has achieved a lot. But before I list the many letters after her name and her achievements and awards, I want to explain why I'm doing this interview. I feel that this story is just so multi-layered and it's brought up so many questions and debate from listeners. And I wanted an expert's opinion to look at the personality types involved, the various catalysts, and also to look at whether this was a crime of its time 
as in things are so different now, would a murder have even occurred at the time, given different circumstances? Um, so I've literally gone to the world's leading expert, Laura Richards, BSE, MSE, MBPSS. In short, she is a behavioural analyst, investigator and advocate. She's worked for a decade at the New Scotland Yard as head of the Homicide Prevention Unit, head of the Violent Crime Intelligence and Analysis Unit, and head of the Sexual Offences Section. She's won numerous awards for her campaigning, advocacy and analytical work to bring, to bring better protection for victims. She's the founder of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. She's also played a crucial role in law reform worldwide, in particular, criminalising coercive control. She's currently leading a campaign in the UK for serial domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police and probation services. She's also an author, a TV and audio creator and producer. Her IMDb includes Dirty John, The Dirty Truth, Jennifer 42, The Case of John Bonnet Ramsey, The Case of Kayleigh Anthony and host of Netflix series Killer in the Family. She's also a podcast veteran, co-creator and co-host of award-winning Real Crime Profile podcast. Whoa, I think I need a sip of tea after that. Laura, <laughs> you literally are the world's leading expert and, and so perfect to be commenting on this podcast. I'm so grateful and so honoured that you're joining me today. So thank you for your time, first of all. Um, and I wanted to start, before we go into the case, I would love to ask you, how did you get into this career? Yes, well, thank you for telling this story and thank you for the warm introduction. Um, my career really started back in 1996 when I applied to work at New Scotland Yard in the sexual offences section in the intelligence branch at New Scotland Yard. And primarily, I really wanted to help victims by identifying perpetrators of serial sexual offences and murder and abduction cases. So I always had a very keen eye on wanting to help people and on justice. And I felt that that would be a really good fit working in that unit. It was really at the start when people were talking about profiling. So there wasn't a big uh, sort of understanding. Now we've got many TV shows on the FBI profiling unit and so on. But I helped set up the one in the UK in the wake of the Peter Sutcliffe case, um, trying to ensure that someone like Sutcliffe would not offend across multiple force areas and ultimately kill many women and destroy many other lives. So that was way back when, and I still am working to that end and to that cause to end male violence. And also, crucially, storytelling is an important thing for you too, and getting these people's stories out there so that those people out there who are maybe suffering in a similar situation know what's going on, can identify what's going on, become their own little amateur criminal profiler, even if that's against their own partner, but hopefully get help as a result. Absolutely. I mean, firstly, I think it's so important for women to tell women's stories. So thank you for telling this story. If men tell our stories, they miss the nuanced detail of what happens to us. They don't have lived in experience of what we go through day in, day out. And I absolutely believe that when you're talking about behaviour, people, particularly on podcasts, it's a very intimate thing. So whenever I talk about the behaviour relating to coercive control, stalking, sexual violence and so on, there'll be someone listening who will self-identify and realise the person I'm talking about is them. And then they seek help. Unfortunately, now we have a coercive control law and a stalking law in England and Wales 
There's a stalking law and coercive control law in Scotland and Ireland, and it's being brought in in Northern Ireland. And now I'm working across the globe in America and Australia to ensure that coercive control is criminalised and that people understand that domestic abuse isn't just about physical harm. It's actually 99% of the behaviour happens before the physical. And it's that that we have to say is unacceptable and will not be tolerated because the non-physical coercive control is insidious. It can be lethal and dangerous in many of the cases. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I, there's a, a phrase that you famously said, it was, with, I mean, more regards to stalking, but I think it's just as relevant with coercive control that it's committing murder very slowly. Um, even if that's, you know, in a, a sense of the person, their, their character is being so crushed and controlled, um, which can then end up being in a, a physical sense as well. Yes, I call them murders in slow motion. It's the murder of self, of the soul, the insidious drip, drip, drip that erodes someone's autonomy and agency and self-esteem over time. So it's not acute. It doesn't happen at one point. It's the gradual erosion, and normally it's in trust. And, you know, these cases really are... Many many victims will say to me that the physical part, the, the bones will mend, the bruises will fade, but the psychological, the emotional, the coercive and controlling elements stay with you forever. So it really is about trying to early identify when these behaviours are happening and ensuring that people get the right sort of help from experts so that you can then start to put together a plan to leave. But leaving is very much a process. And, you know, anyone trying to leave immediately in, in fear, in, in fright and in flight, it means that they will probably go back again. And we know that someone will probably take about seven attempts before they finally and successfully leave the abuser. So it really is incumbent upon us to help people understand this isn't about immediacy and leaving, it's about planning that. And again, the abuse, it's really important to say, it will impact children and they are not witnesses, they are victims. And so we are then creating a next generation that will have the legacy of abuse. And abuse really resides and trauma resides in the body and it will have lifelong impact. So it's really about thinking about the whole family when abuse is happening. And I think that's very relevant with this case um, as we got to the end of the story and we heard uh, the, the eldest daughter's point of view and, uh, you know, she she didn't have a happy life and re- repeated some of the patterns Um and it was just it was heartbreaking and I have no doubt it was uh, stemmed from her childhood and things she'd witnessed and what she'd gone through. It was just awful. Right, before we I mean I've got so much to ask you. <laughs> but I think if we start if we start with um the, the people we have involved here, and I'd like to start with Maxwell Garvey, who as you know, and as people listening will have heard if they've, and if you're listening, you need to go and listen to the podcast first or none of this will make sense. But Maxwell Garvey was a very charismatic man. He was intelligent. He was well respected. He was from an important family in that area. So he had all the things that raised him up. Um, and his background was, you know, he was very, very into agriculture. He studied everything about it, got all the magazines. And then it would change, the subject, his obsession would change um, every so often. So it went from agriculture and then it would be cars and then he got a plane. He was very into photography at one point. And then it got into pornography and he was uh, ordering. And this was a time where, 
You couldn't really go into shop and buy a pornographic magazine. He had to send away for books in London that would get sent to him. Um, and then, of course, as we know, it then went into acting that out with uh, experimenting with nudism uh, and uh, forcing his wife into those pursuits as well. And then bringing other people into his web, if you like. So from what you have heard in the podcast and what I've just told you now, is there a personality type um, that would describe Max? Is there something psychological that uh, correctly kind of equates his character? Well, I think you mentioned a number of very important things there for us to think about, which is um, the fact that he was very wealthy and powerful. So the power and control dynamic, he was a man used to getting his own way. He's not a man that you would say no to, right? And that's what I've understood across your storytelling, that he was somebody who really did have the power and control. He felt very entitled. And entitlement is a big red flag when it comes to abuse, when someone feels entitled to do what the hell they want to. And he had male privilege. So again, we have to remember going back, you know, 1968 or before and, and even now, the patriarchy is about men setting the rules and having power over. And interestingly, with Max, he is of wealth, so he is of means, and people did kowtow to him, even the police, even though he broke the rules and regulations and got tickets and so on, the police still liked him, respected him because he was charming, because he's charismatic, because he's wealthy, because he's held up to be all these incredible things. Whereas when he's with Sheila, she is just the wife. She is an extension of him. So I think we have to understand back in culture, when you marry in our history society to love, honour and obey, she takes on his identity. She really becomes his possession, his property. That's how he views it. But unfortunately, society backs that up too. So we have to talk about, before abuse even begins, the grooming of girls and the grooming of boys that happens before they even the victim even meets the abuser. But for Max, he was a Jekyll and Hyde character. He could be very charismatic when it suited him. But when it did not, when people did not give him what he wanted, he would be controlling, domineering... And he would be abusive and he would be violent. And some of that was behind closed doors and some of it wasn't because there were no balances to stop him. No one held him to account. And this kind of thrill-seeking behaviour, again, it's a red flag for me. Someone who's adrenaline junkie, thrill-seeking, with the traits that I'm describing, you know, I would probably look to do an indirect personality assessment of Max. Was he, did he have psycho psychopathy traits? And some of these things are psychopathy traits. There are 20 of them. And it's to what extreme end you have these traits. But he was a manipulator and it was his way or the highway. And if we add in the fact that he was a womanizer and some people say a playboy, well, for me, that's another red flag. Because it tells me, you know, a womanizer or a playboy is someone who does not respect women. It's somebody who does not want intimacy. They want power over. They enjoy the thrill of the chase. These are all negative traits, as far as I'm concerned, when I'm looking at behavior. And unfortunately, society rewards many of those behaviors rather than condones them. So you have a man who becomes more and more powerful. And you have, unfortunately, with Sheila, a woman who becomes less and less powerful and invisible to people so yes his 
some of his characteristics, and by the way, charm is not a characteristic. It's not an innate trait. People choose to be charming and it's more often than not used to manipulate um, somebody. But Max was someone who, even when they first met, Sheila and Max, you have to take the relationship right back to the beginning for someone like me looking and putting it under a microscope. He showed her who he was right from the start. And that was in the dance where they're, you know, having this beautiful dance and he stops and he blows his nose really noisily, which is intentional, by the way, to see her reaction. She is uh, not shocked by it, maybe a little put off, but seems to see it as his unapologetic, his bold and finds that appealing. But right. Absolutely. Yeah, right away to me, that's a red flag because that's telling you he's not conventional. He doesn't play by the rules. He likes to shock and put people off balance and he gets a bit of a kick out of that. And then he it gets magnified. But the point of what he's doing is to test boundaries and test compliance and to see if she is a compliant, malleable person. And he finds out that, yes, she is because unabashed she carries on and sees it as a positive thing. For me, it's a negative thing, and he continues to erode boundaries from there on out. Of course, she doesn't know that at the start. No one falls in love with an abusive man because he doesn't present as that abuser at the start. But these are the red flags that I look to. And yes, his behaviour, there are many red flags right from the beginning. There's so much I want to say in response to that. It's amazing. And uh but before we go into that, I'd like to turn our attention to Sheila. So a very conservative upbringing, um, fairly poor, um, religious, but then of course ends up at quite a young age living just behind Balmoral Castle. It's actually, it was Landseer's house, one of the artist homes that she was in, um, and observing princesses, observing Princess Margaret and Peter Townsend and she said that was her first sort of vision or, or idea of love seeing the way they looked at each other and she didn't even know what love was at that point and then of course she made a definite decision she worked she ended up moving into the castle she was assistant to the the main royal um housemaid or housekeeper and uh she was you know literally was like Cinderella cleaning out the the fireplaces and she decided I don't want to be one of the help I want to you know make a life of my own and then of course in sweeps her her version of Prince Charming with the money etc um but what to what extent did he she and they were together very young did he shape her actual personality at that point and being with him from such a young age had she had enough time in living to create an identity or was that kind of snuffed out and, and moulded fairly early on with Max? Well, you said three very interesting things. And when I'm looking at behaviour and people, uh, firstly, we have to understand that you talked about the fairy tale. The stories that girls are told when we're little is that a man will come in and sweep us off our feet, the Prince Charming. And that's the story that we think love is about. So that's a big problem for one. For two is that... Um, she is somebody who comes from a traditional background, very conservative, and she is, you know, morally principled and taught to be polite and to be compassionate and to be caring and to put others' needs above her own. Well, that's most girls are taught that. But her upbringing is important. And the fact that three 
she is ambitious. She's working somewhere and she doesn't want to be downstairs staff. She has an ambition to be much more than that. Is that wrong to set your sights higher than what your station is at that time? Absolutely not. But back in the day, it might have been seen as she thinks she's a cut above the rest and therefore it attracts negative judgment and attention. The fact that she's young absolutely plays in. And if he's older, then, of course, she's more malleable. She's compliant. She's going to feel that, uh, you know, the phrase she's punching above her weight, therefore maybe overly compliant. And all those things will tick the box massively or tick all the boxes for someone like Max Garvey. That's exactly who and what he's looking for. And I will say that a skilled abuser will find a particular type of victim. That's what they're looking for is overly compliant, someone who will put their own needs way below the abuser's needs. And that's what he was looking for. That's what, unfortunately, most men look for. Not all men, but most men. And that's what society has told us. That's what history, that's what culture tells us when as soon as girls are born and as soon as boys are born, they're taught that they are superior, that they are entitled to that, that they are more than. And that's where entitlement comes from. So, yes, unfortunately, the ground work was set, that there's a setup for the girls and the boys. And then there's a setup in this case. And then there's the setup of Max grooming her and coaching her and eroding her boundaries gradually over time of introducing things that she didn't want to do initially but he does it slowly from the nudist camps and the nudist holidays to desensitize her to introducing brian to her and making them go out on dates together to then pushing her into a room naked in the dead of night freezing cold and there she is stood there a shy demure young woman being pushed to have sex with another man. Well, that's called prostitution, quite frankly, and tells me that he's objectifying her, that he, she is just a chattel, an extension of him. And it gets worse from there. It was only ever going to get worse from there. And there was a voyeuristic aspect um, with Max there in that he wanted to know what they'd been up to. He took pleasure from it. And crucially, and I didn't labour too heavily on this in the podcast, but when she would return to the marital bed, now that would be whether Trudy was there or not, he would force her to have sex with him. And he got a thrill having sex with Sheila after she'd had sex with Brian. And um, she regarded it as rape. Now, none of this, none of this was raised in the court case because you have sex with your husband and he has the right to do that. But that that's another aspect of Max's controlling, like, you would think that most husbands wouldn't want their wife to be sleeping with another person, but he took pleasure out of that and teasing her about it. And I think teasing her about her morals changing over time as well. Yes, yeah, so sexual coercion, most women tell me, is the worst part, and it goes hand in hand with coercive control. And he introduces it slowly but surely, eroding her boundaries of what's normal and what's not. He desensitises her. But all the while, in her gut, she knows it's wrong, but he gets a kick from it. You know, he's enjoying. He wants to know the explicit details because he has a thing for Brian and also because he is orchestrating this. He has the power and control. He's the puppet master and he enjoys that. And the sexual exploitation 
but she really is just a object to him that he flips a coin whether he will have sex with her or whether Brian will well that tells me everything I need to know of how demoralizing how humiliating how belittling that is for somebody to feel that they are just being objectified and used so that will have a very serious impact on her psychological well-being living with that day in day out and it's one of the reasons why marital rape became a crime in in England and Wales in 1991 so it wasn't that long ago and this is the challenge of when men think that women are are their property or are owned by them and they are not and we're still fighting that battle present day but for Sheila back in this time you know, in the 60s, the context was, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. And she probably wouldn't have seen that as rape, but any form of sexual coercion, anything under duress, and certainly forcing you to have sex with another man, well, I'm sure that would have, for Sheila, felt absolutely horrific. But once she does it once, then he continues with that and the foursomes, and he normalises all this behaviour in a micro world that he creates and that he orchestrates. And he even exposed that side, normalising it, to Sheila's mother and, you know, even discussed it with her that they'd tossed a coin. And you'd think that would be something that a normal person with normal boundaries would try and hide that from their mother-in-law. But he was almost trying to bring the whole family into it and also with the children being present um, at the nudist camp uh, in Corsica as well, the, the, two, the two girls. She was pregnant with her third child at that point, but the... As you say, it's like extending it, normalising it and pushing everyone's boundaries. And that's intentional. You know, it's very intentional, strategic behaviour on his part. He's normalising it to make other people complicit within it. And it's actually a very clever tactic. So I know he's a, he was a very skilled abuser. He knew what he was doing. He learnt his tradecraft. Because by very virtue of the fact he makes Sheila dance cheek to cheek with Brian and everybody witnesses it and they ask questions about her behaviour rather than the person who is orchestrating it and coercing it and forcing it to happen. Well, to everybody else, it looks like she is the adulteress. So it becomes very problematic because it's so entrapping for a victim when that happens and other people see what he is trying to make them see, but actually she is being coerced and she's being forced into it. Um, the mother obviously being spoken to about it, again, uh, probably for her, thinking of her generation, and I've listened to what, what she had said about it, absolutely appalling and horrifying, but would she have challenged him? Probably not. You know, And again, women knowing their place, knowing their station at the time and feeling uncomfortable with something, but not really having any power to do anything about that. It was normally sorted out amongst men, but he therefore made so many people complicit with the abuse and people enabled him. He created this ecosystem that made it very normal and didn't make it um, something that was, I would say, visible. He actually rendered it invisible because it's normalised. You're right about, you know, bringing other people in. Um, again, this is something I couldn't go into a huge amount, but their local minister was aware of their marital issues and some of the things that had been going on. And he was encouraging Sheila to stay with him. The local police officer, they even got, when she tried to escape, they even got the hotel manager to go into the room and say, you need to go home to your husband. She went to a divorce lawyer and was told, well, in the eyes of the law, you are the adulteress and 
you will lose your home and your children. You'll have, you know, nothing. And then I think the, the final thing is when her family as well um, get the strange night of the foursome um, all going to the house and then Sheila awkwardly having to have a private conversation with her own father because he doesn't know what's going on and she does tell him about Max's demands and perversions and what's been going on with Trudy and Brian. And then I think the parents kind of take control, send the brother and sister off and, you know, I think at this point Max does take a little bit of a telling off from the, the parents saying you must stay together and you cannot see those two again and that's agreed upon that they will try for their marriage. But Max's motivation again at that point probably was because he knew that Sheila had fallen in love with Brian in this strange, you know, coming together. There's more to come. Bear with us for a short ad break. Can we move on to Brian? So his background is he was the son of a highly decorated soldier. His father was a major and he himself joined the army but he was then um he got he got into trouble he got thrown out because i think he stole a car with someone and they they uh went awol um and then he ends up working as a mechanic uh he's working in his the bar at his father's hotel but he wasn't certainly from what i've been told he wasn't that's you know he wasn't that charismatic in that people who went into the bar which his father owned, they wouldn't have known, oh, that's the owner's son. He didn't have that same sense of entitlement. So do you think his character traits, from what we know, made him, again, a perfect victim for Max to come in, the older man, the guy with the money, come and drink with us? Because it's a bit odd being invited out with an older married couple when you're 22, and she, or he would have been 21, I think, at the time, and then Sheila would have been 32, and Max just a bit older. Um, but was he another sort of perfect victim for Max to pull into that fold? Most likely, yes, because he was young, because he was malleable and Max targeted him. Now, again, with psychopaths, and I haven't done a full indirect personality assessment of, of Max Garvey, but with psychopaths, they like to use people for their own ends. Everything, the world is created as far as they're concerned for them for them to enjoy, and it's dominate or be dominated. That's simply how they operate, and no one's off limits. So for Max, pick, picking somebody who is young and impressionable, who there's a power imbalance immediately, and he puts him under his wing, you know, are we friends, matey, and hanging out together, or was it actually for more sinister purposes? And given that he had started you know, slowly over time to go to nudist camps, then creating his own nudist camp at a at a property and brings Brian in and then starts to push Sheila and Brian together, there was probably always a plan to groom. And that's why perpetrators groom multiple people. It's it's the it's never just about one person because abuse doesn't ever happen in a vacuum. But a perpetrator will pick, not you, not you, not you, but you they will check compliance and they will see whether all the right characteristics and ingredients are there. So, yes, I think it was purposeful. What he probably didn't plan and never banked on was that Sheila and Brian may form a much deeper relationship because Brian became Sheila's safe person with this insidious abuse continuing. And I do believe that Max broke her will 
and breaking someone's will, invading their spirit, means that they could quite easily see someone else as the rescuer. And I believe that's the role that Brian did play. Absolutely. And she said herself, you know, given different circumstances, would her and Brian have fallen in love? She couldn't answer that. And it, it, and it grew from strange roots. That was her words. And I think that that's very true, that um, she felt safe with him. He, he, he was a strange person that got pulled into it, but because they, they were almost both victims, but also he was, he was male. Um, and he he could be her, her saviour. It's important what you just said, that she had said it, the love had grown from strange roots. And yes, it had. And it was an environment. We've got to remember her world was very small because the world that he, Max, created for her was small. Therefore, he monopolised her perception. Brian was the only external person, really, um, and certainly someone who she was being intimate with. So Max had created this world that's an unreal world full of confusion and fear that she never knew what was right or what was wrong. But there was Brian, who was younger, who was probably much more supportive emotionally, physically, sexually, in every way. And her view of love has been completely distorted from the start anyway. So we've got to remember that when abuse happens, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And who creates that world? Well, certainly an abuser will shrink someone's world down so that the only, they will mon monopolise their perception. So he was really the only person outside of Max because I would imagine he would try and occupy most of her time. And if she wasn't with either one of them, she was probably with her children looking after them. So she didn't have a lot of external influences. So that is also an important context to what went on. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. Um, so to move on to the sort of more speculative side, um, and I always try not to have an opinion with these things, but I, I kind of do based on the things I've learned. And, and also just looking at the fact and the 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 likelihood that Brian and Alan could have turned up on any night and Max definitely being in bed asleep um, then being able to get into the house, get a gun, go up the stick, you know, plus also I think the evidence from, uh, well, sorry, the, the not, not in court, but uh, laterally from the daughter that she recalled going to bed early that night. I think they were watching the Avengers and Sheila said, no, no, you're not seeing the end of it, go to bed and her mother drinking that night. And I think she did get told as well, don't come out. Um, those are indicators that there's something unusual going on. Um, there's also some other small pieces that she was, what she was wearing, uh, Alan Peters, you know, she, she was wearing a dressing gown. Well, if you're getting pulled out of your bed in the middle of the night for someone to murder your husband, do you have time to get your dressing gown? There's all these little things. Um, did you form an opinion about her involvement if she was involved in the planning um did hearing about her when she had alzheimer's still repeating that story if you did indeed think she was involved in the planning did that change that or do you think that her new cleansed version was so ingrained that that became her truth well before i answer that i just want to provide some context information that's very important to me when I'm listening to someone talk about what's happened to them or someone else like you telling her story. But some of the words that you use are actually Sheila's own. And I think it's important that we understand the escalation of behaviour prior to Max being killed. 
and that escalation of her Sheila trying to leave and we know separation is a high risk time and she does manage to leave but Max hunts her down and finds her at a hotel and he threatens to kill her and not just her the children too he threatens to shoot them all and I would imagine Sheila believed him because Max was somebody who when he said he was going to do something he did it and that was enough to get her back and when she spoke to the doctor he then called Max and when she spoke to the police, they told her to go back. And when she spoke to the minister, he told her to go back. So she has everybody pushing her back to Max. And she must have felt incredibly entrapped and hopeless and helpless. And there were probably conversations. Uh, and I would imagine, I think it's Brian's account where he said, she said it would be easier if Max wasn't around. And that may well have been said. Now, Brian may well have thought that that was codified behaviour of saying, get rid of him. Okay, he was infatuated by her, by his own admission. He felt the, old, the, the older woman, the younger guy, he was head over heels in love with her. So the question is, as, as you say, and it, the question at, at court was, was it planned? And if so, who planned it? And who then absolutely killed him because we know that he died and then who knew what afterwards and all of their accounts are diametrically opposed to each other which again may well have been a tactic but it's very difficult for me to say without reading all of the paperwork all of the statements all of the material who knew what at, at which time but what I do know about women who kill or if they have somebody else who fires the bullet or kills the person is that it's normally in self-defense and they've normally been subjected to a long-term pattern of coercive control and physical and sexual abuse and they normally feel that it is their only way out of that situation the challenge is that because they tend to have to have planned it premeditation is that they tend to get a far longer sentence and are vilified and are seen as cold-blooded killers versus a man who kills in the same context and plans it. They are seen as it's a crime of passion. It's because she did X that he did Y. And there's a double standard that's created. And I do see a double standard in this case across all the reporting, the headlines and so on, other than your storytelling showing that there's far more to what went on. Could they have got into the house on their own? Would Brian and Alan have just been able to let themselves in to hide without Sheila knowing? I would imagine that's highly unlikely. So therefore, if what Wendy's account, what Wendy says, if that's true, and I have no reason to believe that it was not true because she seemed to have no malice to her mother, that her being ushered to bed early, that there was a change. And I always look for, was there a change? What's the pre-offence behaviour? If she was ushered to bed early, if she was told not to come out, if her mother was drinking and that was unusual behaviour, hadn't happened before, didn't happen the night before that, then I would, again, it points to the fact that she probably did know she was part of the planning. And she may not have known every detail of what was going to happen, but even if she let them in and there was murder in mind, then in law and Scottish law, in terms of enterprise, then she was privy to that plan and part of that plan, but she did not pull the trigger. And we know that through Brian's own confession. 
Did she know what was going to happen next? I doubt it very much. Did Brian I think, think it through? You know, I'm not sure it was necessarily planned to such a degree. And I don't believe she knew where the body was. But was she relieved afterwards her post-defence behaviour? Absolutely she was. And I believe that this was a woman who felt she had no other choice. She had been abused consistently and her, her spirit had been broken. Everything had been broken down. And when women are sexually abused, sexually coerced, used as objects, at some point they may well make a decision. She felt that if she stayed, she would probably die. And if she left, he would hunt her down and kill her. So what choice? Because I want our, your listeners to put themselves in her shoes at that time. What were her choices? What were her options? And I'm not saying murder is right either, but the context is really important that we understand what was happening and the evidence. There is some evidence that suggests that she may well have known. Wow. <laughs> I think you've just nailed it. The purpose of me doing this story and the thing, I didn't know all the details before I went down on this, on this journey and this path, but I was always intrigued because she, she had become this sort of enigma, almost folklore. And, uh, you know, I was working, I, I explained the podcast, my mum attended the court case and I heard about it um, from a young age. And then I heard more about it because my first editor, he lived in the same um, village that she ended up in, or town, Stonehaven. And he would say, oh, he would see this lonely woman walking on the beach with her dog. He said, oh, that, you know, that's a killer. And, uh, but she, she never bothered in. And everyone kind of left her alone, which is, I'm glad to hear. But I really was so keen to explore what had happened to this woman that led her from this to this. And all the points you made there, and sorry, mid, mid, interrupted you mid-sentence, but you actually went on and you said exactly what I was about to say was, you know, I don't think she knew um, where the body was and that was genuine and seemed genuine and everything else and the evidence pointed to that, which I think helped her reinforce her, I wasn't really involved because she didn't really know that the gun had been fired. It's quite possible she didn't hear it because of the cushion silencing it. Um, but the other thing that you touched on there, which is so crucial, is her post-defence behaviour, which, of course, I think that was a large factor in the jury um, finding her guilty because it's hard to um, explain why you would then be, and I think they had various evidence of the fact that that summer that they'd gone out and socialised with people, they'd been affectionate in public in front of people, they hadn't hidden their romance. And I think Sheila was so relieved to be out of uh, the relationship with Max that she finally felt free. But of course it was this thing, this particular point which her mother even though she knew her daughter was a victim and, you know, she'd said, you don't need to worry about it, he won't be bothering us anymore. She couldn't cope with that. Um, and then, of course, the thing in her head was Max had always said, keep, keep uh, my children away from Brian. So I think that the mother had potentially vilified Brian uh, as being the bad person more than, than Max, perhaps. I think it's difficult to say, but I think always things come down to the biggest fear and what you can live with. Right. That's how behavior works. And the mother obviously felt that she added up two and two and she got to four of the way her daughter was behaving, not forsaking the fact she knew her daughter was treated abysmally and abhorrently and had been abused throughout the relationship. 
she really was Max's, you know, plaything. And it wasn't just about trophy. It was about utter ownership and utter domination of Sheila. And so her spirit and her will would have been broken and the liberation. I always say that coercive control is like being a prisoner of war. It's the same psychology. It's a liberty crime. So her behaviour post of being free finally from Max, even though the most heinous thing had happened, i.e. he'd been killed, it's very conflicting for her. But overtly, remember that Max has already desensitised her to being in public with Brian, being cheat-to-cheat dancing with him and creating this world where it was just normalised, this foursome and them being together. And so, again, for Sheila, her world has been distorted. It's not just gaslighting. Everything was distorted by Max. He created new rules. He desensitised. He pushed boundaries. He created an unreal world that Sheila had to inhabit. And there afterwards, she started to get her own autonomy back. And murder is never the solution to these things. But unfortunately, Sheila may well have felt that that was the only option. And when she would say something, it would be easier to be with you, Brian, if Max wasn't around, that could be taken very literally, although she didn't have murder in mind. But when things started to happen, she may well have not put the brakes on it or stopped it because it suited her and it suited Brian, Alan's role in it. Of course, um, he seemed to be the driver and therefore he must have been knowledgeable about what was happening. He was there and he disposed of the body. So he did know he was acquitted or it wasn't proven But I think the challenge always in these cases is you've got three people, three very different accounts. It's pre-forensic evidence days. Therefore, forensically, you can't say who fired the bullet, all the things that we would do now. But I would hope that if Sheila's case happened now and if there's a Sheila listening to this, that they, you would know that there are options and there are people that will support you to leave safely and enable you and your children to live abuse-free, and that someone like Max, his behaviour, he would be held to account for what he was doing, and society would condone it, you would hope, the courts would condone it, and he would be made to be accountable and responsible for his behaviour, and therefore we wouldn't, we don't want to have women in Sheila's position feeling hopeless and helpless, that there's no way out, that they either take their own lives, you know, or they take think matters into their own hands and they orchestrate for the abuser to be killed and not forsaking I do want to make the point that when Max said that he would have her committed to a mental institution or mental asylum he meant it and women were committed just on a man's say so so his power his control over her was in every aspect and the fear and how she had to live day in day out with knowing that he holds her life in the palm of his hand every day And she just wanted to be a mother and live the life that she thought she was signing up for. I'm so glad you brought that up there about the Sheilas out there listening. And I I hope um, that those who do identify with this will reach out and get help when needed. And when they, um, you know, can go online and look at all sorts of um, different possibilities for how they can do that anonymously as well. Because that's a really important thing is the safety aspect. Um, I also wanted to touch on, not too much, but Fred and Trudy's role. Now, what's interesting is Fred's a police officer. They're married, they have children. And 
he he somehow becomes sort of aware that his wife's starting to spend a lot of time um, with with her brother and this couple, and he at some point does become fully aware that there is a sexual relationship going on. But how that is then again manipulated is Max invites Fred to go, I think it was fishing or something like that. They went to some sort of boys' activity. He may have even gone in the plane with him. I think his aeroplane was used as a grooming tool, actually, because uh, what's more powerful than putting your life in someone's hands in an aeroplane, but also the thrill of feeling alive and being so high above everything. And then, of course, the, the evening that Fred gets invited and a young woman is brought along, there is a debate as to whether or not anything happened between him and this young woman. I think he claimed that he drove her home. But anyway, but that the that Fred, although was accepting of that because of the power of this man again. But then that that did turn. And also Trudy admitted freely that she, I think she was quite heartbroken and upset that Max had, had called things off. So both of them had a reason to not like Max, I guess. So they were then, it wasn't too hard for them to agree to become involved after the act. And they did cover up for Brian and cover up for Sheila um, would that be a accurate assessment what I've just gone through there of my own amateur psychoanalysis there of of what happened with with those two well I think when we go back to context the swinging 60s meant that lots of people were doing things now that we might look back on and think crikey that's pretty salacious and sexually promiscuous but I think what Max did particularly well was just make these things very normal and the power and the wealth that he had was an aphrodisiac to people. And I do believe that he targeted people specifically. So it's no accident that Trudy is Brian's sister. And it's no accident she's married to a police officer. That would be a great get for someone like Max. The thrill of the chase to have someone like Trudy in his pocket. And then, of course, the belittling comment to Sheila is that just two nights with Trudy is better than our whole marriage of all the time I've spent with you, this constant drip, drip, drip of belittling. Uh, so where do Trudy and Brian fit in? Well, I would imagine that when Trudy understands Brian is involved, she wants to protect her brother. And maybe it is just as simple as that. Maybe she didn't realise that Sheila knew or Sheila was a part of it or didn't think that she was, but it was actually much more about protecting her brother. And where he fits in, well, police officer, he understands certain things, but he has a wife and a, and a brother-in-law who he may well be trying to protect as well. Maybe there's something else that we don't know about. Um, I always say that people operate and work to their biggest fear. So and when there's shame or when there's anything that, you know, a secret that we try and hide, that could be the motivator for why someone does what they do, only we don't know about that. But if it's true that they switched mattresses, and if it's true that, um, was it Fred? Was that his name? Fred, yeah. And if it's true that Fred gave advice to Sheila about guns and wiping it with an oily rag in the context of knowing about Max... And of course, he may have said those things without even knowing what she was referring to. So again, context is always very important, but it could very well just come down to the fact that they're trying to protect Brian. And I would imagine that Max 
they didn't feel too fondly of after a while. And maybe even Brian was confiding in them what was happening with Sheila. Maybe they felt sympathy because Sheila was the true victim after all, even though she had been gaslit, even though people were made to think that she was complicit in her own abuse. Clearly she wasn't. And that may well have leaked out and become clear to Trudy and Fred. In summary, and this is a... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, I guess you've said things along these lines already. My purpose of doing this was to change the perception that people had and the legacy that was left of this. Um, the, the funny thing is the publicity of this podcast has got their still kinky cottage. The, this is the thing they, they focus on. King, the kinky cottage was a cottage out in the countryside. He wasn't killed there. It was kind of a, a small part of the story, but that was a headline. I wanted people to look back and see Sheila in a different light, if that was indeed the truth that came out. And I believe that is the truth that came out. So in summary, what's your, what would be your perspective of a kind of broad term of, of this murder and why it happened and of Sheila? Well, yes, there is a story behind these salacious and sensational headlines that we still see in cases present day. And that's everything my work is trying to challenge and change. But I do think that this is a story that started with love, sadly, as most cases do. Every murder case I've worked that's domestic violence, stalking related, it starts with love. No one marries the abuser. The abuser doesn't hit them on date number two. It's a gradual process. It starts with love but ended in murder. And this is much more a story about power and control and abuse and how many people enabled Max and created an ecosystem to support his abuse of Sheila. And many people were complicit in that. So I think many people are culpable in this case it wasn't just about the actions that Brian and Sheila took. It was about everybody playing their part, that from the police, the minister, the lawyer that she spoke to, everyone further entrapping her and giving her no hope and making her feel utterly helpless. And Max being able to act with impunity, to threaten to kill her, to threaten to kill and shoot the children... Well, any mother is going to try and protect their children. You know, to the nth degree, they will do. Why isn't anyone talking about that, about his behaviour? And until we really put violent and abusive men under the microscope, until we start saying, well, why does he abuse and how do we stop him, rather than why doesn't she leave and why did she do this and why didn't she do that, we're focusing on the wrong person. And that's everything this case encapsulates. Even at the end, Max is seen as the victim. But actually, there are many victims in this. The children are also victims. The legacy of abuse that impacts on them, Wendy, her death, that is a re result of what she experienced as a child. The body keeps the score and trauma, addiction, all of these things co-occur. And therefore, we have to think about the whole family. And if we use terms like abusive relationship or abusive household we're not naming the abuser okay and so the masking through the headlines and through the wrong language and through the victim blame in my view it's everything that this case is about that we have to stop and we have to transfer the lens and the narrative and put the perpetrator the true perpetrator under that microscope and ask why is he doing what he's doing and how do we stop him that's the correct art question to be asking in these cases it's all about the abuser and what they're doing and how we as a society 
put an end to that, the higher authority and the police, and it's about the courts and the justice system being clear that abuse is unacceptable and ensuring that women know that there is help out there from women's aid, from refuge, from paladin, from all these specialist services who can help and advocate. And there are coercive control laws in England, Wales, Scotland, uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland. There's stalking legislation. That piece, These pieces of legislation are there to help protect you and keep you safe. So there is hope out there. And I think that's an important part to end on that there is hope and out of this storytelling and I really commend you Isla for telling telling Sheila's story and Brian's story and Max's story and the children's story with compassion and with empathy but in the hope that if we tell the story in the right way the the true way and we show every perspective and the types of behavior there's a chance we may be saving someone's life just by talking about those behaviours and what risk looks like. And perhaps now someone will help seek from a specialist and be able to leave an exit from an abuser who has been controlling them in exactly the same way that Max controlled Sheila. All right, I cannot thank you enough for your absolutely fascinating insight, but also, crucially, your advice there at the end that if anyone listening to this does identify with this that they they must reach out and get help because there is help and support out there so thank you so much for your time i'm so grateful and i'm sure the listeners will have found it just as fascinating as i did so thank you for your time you're welcome thank you for telling sheila's story and please do refer people to the my website i've got lots of different pages on coercive control if you think someone is being coercively controlled that you love or if you're being coercively controlled and what the signs are of coercive control so there is expert information on there that's easily digestible and can signpost people to help and specialist support because that's really what's needed when these cases happen so thank you very much for your time Well, I'm sure like me, you were enthralled by Laura's analysis and it really was a treat to hear from her. She is a very busy woman. She spoke to me literally in the middle of her crucial work reforming laws in the US and Australia. And of course, her own storytelling in Real Crime Profile podcast, which she hosts with the equally brilliant Jim Clemente. He's a former FBI profiler and he's the writer and producer of Criminal Minds, who I've had the honour to know during my time living in the US and Lisa Zambetti, she's the casting director of Criminal Minds. So if you haven't already listened to Real Crime Profile, then please check it out. And Laura has her own solo project coming out soon, so keep an eye out for that. Now, as promised, I'm going to give you the list of resources where you can seek help if affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast. But before I do, I want to let you know there is more. You've heard her voice throughout the series, bringing to life the words of Sheila Garvey, award-winning actor Kate Dickey, who you'll know from her extremely long IMDb list, including Game of Thrones, Peaky Blinders, Star Wars, Prometheus, Filth, Red Road, many more. Now, in our discussion, you will hear her own words and her own insights into Sheila Garvey. Kate is a passionate advocate for storytelling and particular women's stories and giving a voice to those who are often not heard. So I can't wait for you to hear that in our next episode. So... I'll include these in the show description, but if you have a pen handy, then please take note of these websites and know there are safe resources out there should you need help. You are not alone and there is confidential and free support out there. 
Now, all of these websites start with www. So we have laurarichards.co.uk, and that's a great place to start. There's lots of resources on there. There's also womensaid.org.uk for those of you in the UK. And for those in the US, we have thehotline.org. And if you're in Australia, there's lifeline.org.au. So if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, please do get help. Thank you once again for listening to this special episode of the Storyteller Violent Delights. And again, please do subscribe, rate and review. As Laura so kindly said, this type of storytelling is really important and I want to continue doing that, but I cannot do it without your help and support. Thank you for listening.